Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Andre Abrahamian, who's Correct Fellow at the Asia Pacific Research Center at Stanford University, about his new book, North Korea and Myanmar, Divergent Paths, which was published last year, 2018, by McFarland. At what often seems like a period of unprecedented stress in global relations, whether between China and the US, Russia and the West at large, or among many other parties, disputes and conflicts can tell us a lot about how the international community or international order is supposed to function in theory. Andre Abrahamian's Divergent Paths, which counterposes and explains North Korea's and Myanmar's long careers as pariah states within this order, is thus a timely account of two comparable, yet quite different Asian countries, which have arguably shed the starkest light on the global order's disorderly fringes. Years of experience travelling to and living in both places gives Abrahamian a unique perspective on this pair of outposts of tyranny, as former US Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice dubbed them in 2005. This first-hand knowledge is mobilised to great effect in what is a lively account of why one country, Myanmar, has to some extent managed to emerge from its pariah position in recent years, whilst the other, North Korea, remains largely excluded, whatever hopes we might have amidst recent signs of greater contacts across the 38th parallel. Indeed, this book helps us to appreciate this latest warming of inter-Korean relations in its deeper context, for understanding the DPRK's uniquely resilient socio-political system and its interaction with the world around it is likely to be invaluable in parsing what may lie ahead for East Asia's most intractable geopolitical problem. On Myanmar too, the book offers fresh and valuable perspective, for as Abrahamian shows, the country's recent partial resumption of international outcast status amidst the horrifying Rohingya crisis emerges from a long history of religious and ethnic fragmentation in the country and official mismanagement of this. In any case, though, to discuss the book and some of its wider ramifications, uh, I'd like to say, Andre Abrahamian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Well, thanks very much for agreeing to appear. Uh, it's a great book and, and tells us a lot about two countries that I think it's uh, pretty important to understand, as I mentioned. Um, but before we jump in, perhaps I could ask you to start us off by saying something about yourself and how you became interested in, in these two places and came to sort of focus on them uh, academically. Yeah, um, I was doing a PhD focused on North Korea and at the nadir of that experience in 2010, I decided that I should at least go and try to see the place um, if I was going to dedicate my life to banging out my precious ideas about it. From a distance, I thought I should at least take a look at it up close. So I booked a tour and I went as uh, most citizens of the world can do visited North Korea for five days and I thought, okay, this is interesting enough to, to continue with this life choice. Um, and then I also started trying to think of ways that I could actually work with North Koreans and engage them 
personally rather than than just think about them from a distance. Uh, by chance, I was introduced to a young Singaporean fellow, Jeffrey C. And at the time, he was just getting a project rolling, which would become uh, Joseon Exchange. Joseon Exchange, a nonprofit that trains North Koreans in economic policy and entrepreneurship. So I jumped at the chance to get involved with that. And uh, eventually, we won enough support that I was able to move to Beijing and run programs in North Korea and uh, also bring North Koreans abroad for training as well, mostly in, in Singapore. Mm-hmm. Um, working in North Korea is uh, in many ways very stressful. And living in Beijing is also in many ways very stressful. Uh, and when my wife was offered a job in Yangon, uh, she, she came to me and was like, should, should we do this? This would be crazy, right? We shouldn't. This is a madness. And I was like, no, no, let's do it. Uh, because this was 2014, moving into 2015, uh, Myanmar really was emerging from its... its uh, isolation. And I thought I would be able to potentially learn something uh, about what happens when a pariah state comes in from the cold, so to speak. Um, Mm -hmm. And so ended up living there for a couple of years. And within a a couple of months, I I started thinking that this could turn into a a book project by which I compared and contrasted um, the two countries because there was really nothing out there that attempted to do that. Um, there's been no books, plenty of, of papers and, and uh, uh, journal articles thinking about the relationship between the two countries as they cooperated during their, uh, their pariah days. Um, mm-hmm. but, but very little that, that sought to compare the systems that made them pariahs and made them so resilient to, to uh, the pressure that they were facing from the outside world. Mm-hmm. And was your earlier doctoral work uh, relating to North Korea also on this sort of subject, uh, the, the the kind of idea of, of pariah nationhood or, or, or this kind of thing? Or what, what kind of uh, focus did you have at that stage? Uh, I was looking at the way uh, media and n- nonfiction um, media treats North Korea, the way that ideas about the place are formed and how that impacts how we think about the country and the policy outcomes that that, that may or may not lead us to as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I guess the, yeah, the kind of understanding the place in context and, and uh, its relationship to a, a wider external world was, was already there uh, in your mind. Mm. Um, well, that, that's, uh, that's fascinating. And, and in terms of writing the book, um, uh, at what point did you sort of... Um, sit down and, 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 and sort of decide to, to really do that? Uh, and, and how did the actual process of writing it kind of emerge uh, in terms of jumping between two different locations, the, the structure? Uh, how did you sort of uh, conceive of, of the book as a whole like that? Um, I, I guess fairly early, you, you know, it was clear that the North Koreans had built a, a system that was far more controlled than, than the North Koreans and far more uh, resilient in its closed form than anything the Burmese ever ever came up with. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't think I wrote the book in the order that it appears. I began by uh, 
comparing and contrasting the ideologies on which both states rest and the systems of control or consent building that exist in them as well. Um, and then uh, because this was a period in, in which uh, Myanmar was emerging from isolation, uh, I started trying to think through uh, other reasons beyond sort of resilience that that, that country was able to make that change. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, well, uh, given that that's the sort of, uh, yeah, the background to, to the project as a whole, I think we should uh, kind of get into the, the contents here and, and it should uh, seg pretty smoothly into, into the introduction in which you ask or pose the question, why these countries? Um, yeah. Why is it that, that these two in particular make a good comparison? So could you uh, say a little bit more in answer to that question? Yeah, and you know there there are a couple of questions I get quite frequently about it, uh, criticisms that are fully valid. One of them is, you know, what's the value in in comparing these two quite different countries? You know, how can you compare countries that are so vastly different? Um, you know, Burma is a multi multi ethnic uh, tropical country that lies at the the where. ASEAN meets India meets Southwest China. North Korea, on the other hand, is a is a often frozen Northeast Asian state that has created a real garrison through which, at times, you know, not, very little flows, um, both in terms of trade and information, um, and I think you could argue also cultural inputs as well. I think I think for me, uh, I immediately saw enough there to warrant a comparison. These were both the only post-war pariah states in Asia, in in the East Asia region. They're both incredibly militarized states, uh, relying on the the military as both the only really functioning institution for a period of time in both cases, uh, and indeed the the driving um, cultural as well as organizational force in in both countries, mm-hmm. um, and really the they're the the two countries that just sat with folded arms as this incredible belt of prosperity was created, you know, starting in Singapore and stretching all the way up through China and Japan. Um, no other country really failed to participate quite as much as these two. Although the you know clearly Laos and Cambodia are, are laggards as well, um, and yeah, it was for me I think clearly connected to the fact that both of these countries are awkward agglomerations uh, of of people. Or, or they, they don't fit the, uh, an elegant set of boundaries for a nation state. Mm-hmm. I understand that that's certainly not a, a unique um, experience for post-colonial uh, state formation, mm-hmm. um, but I think it's particularly acute in, in these two countries. Um, mm. Burma cobbled together in, in a way that is extremely awkward, by by the British, and then uh, Korea divided at the end of, of the Second World War. By all accounts, if there there is going to be a, a natural, I'm making air quotes. I know you can't see it, but <laughs> a, a natural 
nation state, the Korean Peninsula is one, one of the better candidates, mm. Um, mm. ethnically homogenous, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And, mm. you know, what we've had since 1945 is two competing states. Um, and so, so in both cases, extremely difficult to sort of consolidate the independence that came after the collapse of the Japanese uh, empire. Sure, sure. And we'll probably uh, come on a bit more to the sort of history of the formation of both places uh, in a second. But I, I just thought I'd jump back for a moment to your personal experiences there. I mean, um, in terms of commonalities or, or, or differences and, and, and this uh, uh, justification, as you mentioned, for comparing the two, um, having spent long periods of time, or in the case of North Korea, certainly many, many repeat visits uh, in, in the countries themselves, uh, was was your sense of there being a similar atmosphere for you as a as a person as an outsider coming into those societies? Um, was there was there some commonality of, of experience uh, that that you felt uh, on a, on a kind of ground level amongst yeah. ordinary people uh, that, that that merited the comparison? Well, uh, unfortunately for me, but very fortunately, I would say for the the people of Myanmar, by the time I first visited that country in 2014, the atmosphere was basically very open and friendly so this the stories that i heard from uh from locals and indeed long-term expats you know people who've been there in the early mid-2000s even the 1990s their descriptions of it sounded really quite similar to to the experience of living in in pyongyang um you know, it, extremely difficult to have conversations with with locals. For example, as a visitor, uh, people would not speak openly. Um, people would be certainly wary of any interaction that would draw the the attention of uh, secret police who were uh, everywhere in mm-hmm. in Burma. Although, perhaps not as everywhere as they wanted you to think. Um, that they they certainly managed to create an atmosphere where where people were were worried about interacting with foreigners, where it was a risk. Um, but still, much looser than in North Korea. So, for example, you could you could even as a journalist or a researcher sneak into Burma on a tourist visa travel on your own you know you would be followed but you could often lose your tail so to speak um, and be p- picked up again later down the road or in the, in the neighboring town and you know be asked to leave or told to leave mm-hmm. that that sort of ability to roam or visit people's homes even it's just not allowed in in Pyongyang so e- even though they did create a very restrictive and repressive uh, atmosphere for foreigners in Yangon. Um, it didn't approach what the North Koreans have created. By 2014, everything was pretty normal. Indeed, uh, y- you know, every taxi driver and anyone else you interacted was happy to complain about the the government. Mm. And yet that wasn't your, I mean, perhaps it goes without saying, but uh, since you're someone with such a unique uh, experience of, of, of time in North Korea and contact with uh, many uh, North Korean citizens or from groups who uh, certainly tourists to the country don't uh, really get the chance to talk to, um, that, that that wasn't your experience of, uh, of, of the North <laughs> Koreans you spent time with. Yes. Um, 
Definitely not. Uh, certainly not somebody you were interacting with, you know, for the first or even second or third times in North Korea. Mm-hmm. Maybe once you develop a relationship with someone, um, some some cautiously expressed dissatisfactions will emerge, or you know, underlying cynicisms will will uh, bubble up. But um, if you meet someone for the first time, almost certainly you will hear nothing that contradicts the uh, the official uh, party line. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting in, in terms of uh, yeah, in terms of the atmosphere. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, but as you mentioned, yeah, the the, the kind of uh, historical depth that this book goes into, I think, uh, accounts for uh, why the comparison makes sense in in light of the fact that. Um, Burma, Myanmar was uh, was perhaps a bit more like that in past times. Um, so we'll go back to those past times uh, as we move into chapter one. And you've already alluded to the uh, slightly awkward or very awkward uh, formation of each state uh, mm. and, and how um, uh, each one was either respectively cobbled together or cut apart, as you as, as you conceive of it uh, in the chapter heading. Um, could you just provide a bit more background? Um, to listeners on on the sort of uh, on the history on the on the sort of post-colonial and and post-imperial uh, history of the formation of, of each place. Um, yeah, so in Myanmar, which was a a British colony called Burma, uh, gradually taken over the course of the nineteenth century in three different wars with multi-decade interregna in between. Um, the British were chased out by the Japanese during World War II and then came back and uh, kicked the Japanese out. Um, this uh, littered the country with, with weapons. Uh, guns were extremely easy to get a hold of. Everybody had one. And such was the fervor for independence that um, the British couldn't, Remain, you know, there there were hopes of creating sort of a, a trusteeship, uh, a transition period of, of stewardship before independence. Indeed, that was something that the uh, the Americans and the, the Soviets wanted for Korea as well. But um, in neither case would would the citizenry tolerate such a thing. So uh, you have uh, essentially two parts of Burma: Lower and Upper Burma. Uh, an incredibly diverse range of, of ethnic groups. Um, officially, the state there uh, recognizes uh, eight main ethnic groups with 135 subgroups. Uh, anthropologists that I've spoken to roundly call, call that a bunch of nonsense. Um, and indeed, you you can't avoid coming across anthropologists in in Yangon. It's, <laughs> Myanmar, I think, is interesting to your type of person, Ed. Um, <laughs> but uh, the roots of that categorization uh, go back to the the colonial period. Europeans, as they want to do, show up somewhere and and begin uh, reifying people, putting them in in um, categories. Uh, and so what was once a much more fluid and, in a way, ambiguous set of overlapping identify, uh, identities became uh, reified, uh, and uh, that contributed to 
the the conflict that emerged very quickly uh, after independence. Basically, the father of modern Burma was Aung San. He was uh, a general, uh, and Aung San Suu Kyi's father. He had a great deal of personal and political capital and respect from uh, a, a wide swath of uh, Burmese society, uh, including ethnic minority groups. Unfortunately, he was assassinated in 1947, and then there was really no person um, or coalition that were able to hold things together. So um, within a couple of years of his death, there were all sorts of insurgencies breaking out. Um, many were driven uh, by ethnicity. So the, the Karen, uh, a large minority that make up, I think still, I would say 8% of the uh, contemporary population. Mm-hmm. They were an open rebellion and, and controlled a big chunk of, of the middle of the country. The communists... Um, who were originally part of a ruling coalition, they left actually in two sort of batches, two factions, and went underground and began waging a guerrilla war. And then dozens of other armies um, followed followed suit. Mm. Uh, I quote Mary Callahan in the book, a scholar uh, at the University of Washington, who points out that it, it wasn't clear that the Tatmadaw, the official army of, of the state was anything other than one of, of many small armies duking it out for a little piece of this country. Mm. Um, yeah, so uh, conflict began almost immediately after independence and um, really remained uh, a threat to the state, I argue in the book, until the 1990s. Yeah, in Korea, on the other hand, the the Soviets and the Americans end up at the end of World War II occupying uh, a half of the country each and setting about building rival states. The leadership on both sides of that divide really want to unify the the peninsula on their terms. Um, Kim Il Sung decides he's going to go for it first and initiates uh, a war in June of 1950. Um, and that is essentially fought to a standstill once the Americans cobble together a coalition of UN forces and um, fight their way back up the peninsula. Mm. Uh, but they, they end up, after a three-year incredibly gruesome uh, war at the, the line where they began almost... Uh, so three years of, of fighting to get basically nowhere. The the two states still exist and go about trying to rebuild and uh, compete with each other. Um, so f- from North Korea's perspective, you know their their rightful territory, the Korean Peninsula, uh, is only not under their control because a hostile superpower an imperialist power, as they would put it, uh, has occupied half of it, uh, almost interrupted since 1945, thus thwarting the completion of the, the Korean Revolution and uh, creating the, the, the need, as they would see it, for nuclear weapons and uh, all the other 
things they've gotten up to over the years. Mm. Well, we'll perhaps move on to that now because uh, having got a sense of the, as you said uh, at the start there, uh, somewhat uh, unnatural or awkward, if there is indeed, as you also mentioned, a natural way of making a, a nation state. Um, but uh, yes, in, a, in any case, uh, there's, I think, little doubt that both of these places are um, constructed in a, in a way that makes them uh, not quite fit the, the boundaries that are either around or, or indeed within them. Um, yeah. So uh, we move on then uh, to things like nuclear weapons, but perhaps via uh, rather, rather lo- uh, smaller scale uh, weapons first. Um, you focus on chapter in chapter two on the militarization of, of both societies and how that was prioritized over uh, the, eco- the economy. Um, could you say something about how that how that unfolded uh, and and kind of what what it was about the uh, circumstances in which each state emerged um, that led to this uh, this this militarization and what the similarities and differences between uh, the process in each place were? Yeah, it really took place around the the same time in both countries, which was in the, the early to mid sixties. Uh, um, so in in Myanmar. Uh, they had a, a parliament, a civilian government that was was uh, deadlocked and seemed to be unable to deal with the country's problems. The military were invited in 1958 to to initiate a constitutional coup. I'm making I'm making air quotes again. Uh, <laughs> very useful. But nonetheless, that's what they did. They gave up power. A couple of years later, returned it to the civilians, having stabilized the uh, economy. The civilians immediately began uh, faffing around again, and the military returned with another coup in 1962, this time without any pretensions of giving power back. Um, They set about creating a socialist state uh, and so nationalized property and um, create uh, essentially uh, an environment in which uh, the the military is leading this road to socialism and it becomes really the the primary, in some ways, only functioning institution in in the country. Um, Moreover, um, there are still various insurgencies raging uh, around the country. And uh, in the mid-1960s, the Tatmadaw, as the, the Burmese military was and still is called, uh, came up with a counterinsurgency strategy, which they implemented in uh, 1968. They call it Kalepia, or the Four Cuts, which uh, essentially is a, a way of, of denying resources, cutting, cutting resources off from... Uh, insurgents. Um, so, really, uh, both in terms of economic uh, and social organization, the military came to the front in in the sixties, and then in terms of a solution to this core security threat of insurgency, again, it, it was going to be a military solution rather than a uh, a political one. Mm-hmm. In in North Korea. Uh, they'd had a couple of successful multi-year plans after the Korean War to rebuild. They had a three-year plan and then a, a five-year plan, which took them to 1961. And then uh, 
they initiated a seven-year uh, plan, which was supposed to help develop light industry and consumer goods. But instead, um, resources came to be poured into the military to the extent that, um, according to some estimates, and there's a lot of guesswork here, uh, military spending shot up from 2 or 3% of GDP to possibly as high as 30 um, And that was for uh, a few different reasons. I think ultimately Kim Il-sung hadn't given up on unifying the peninsula by force mm. and, or, and or inspiring a revolution in the south. Um, and the international conditions were also such that uh, he had lost faith in the USSR and a number of things with China also made him feel like he was very much on his own and that that a garrison state was necessary in order to survive against this uh, hostile superpower that wasn't going anywhere. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's... Yeah. yeah. Sure. Well, and then, sure. Uh, And you mentioned then that, um, or at least you you, you sort of move on in in the next chapter to uh, how it was that that these circumstances led to to pariahdom, uh, if you will, uh, becoming uh, pariah states. Um, Was it uh, an outside reaction to this militarization and and the sort of uh, hampering, therefore, of economic development that brought these uh, or or kind of uh, saw, saw these two countries both become pariahs, um, or, or what was it that sort of, uh, yeah, set that set that kind of uh, set that dynamic in, in motion, um, and how was it related to the to the military militarization side? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think you referenced it in your introduction, which is that um, this militarization took place during the Cold War, and during during that uh, bipolar conflict as a smaller state, you could find a home in one camp or another, uh, almost regardless of how you were running your country or how you were treating your people. So, you know, if you were a a socialist state, uh, you could find backing from the USSR and or China. And, you know, if you were anti-communist, didn't matter what you did, really, the Americans would, would find a way to support you. Mm. And so, um, you know, really, during the Cold War, South Africa was sort of this weird outlier. But almost every other serial human rights abuser, autocratic or totalitarian state was was able to exist uh, without facing the sorts of pressures that we've seen come to bear post-Cold War. Um, so... Yeah, I would I would argue that neither became a pariah until the Cold War had ended. Um, although you know that might be a bit too elegant, I think the end of the Cold War also inspired decisions in both capitals that very directly led to to their pariah status. Hmm. So, so is, uh, in that sense, I mean, would you go as far as to say that the the idea of a pariah is? something of a post-Cold War artifact? I mean, is this, was, was this just not something that, uh, that, that existed before uh, the, the, the Cold War ended? Yeah, maybe. I, 
you know, I don't know. I guess, they, <laughs> I guess that's, some, that's something. No. That's something that we, as as scholars and authors, we need <laughs> we need to occasionally be able to have the confidence to say, I, I'm not sure. But when you think back to the Cold War period, really, other than South Africa, it's hard to think of of a of a universally or near universally condemned uh, mm. society the way uh, North Korea and, and uh, Myanmar, Burma. Uh, have been and then at the end of the cold war itself sort of domestically in both countries um of course not unrelated to what was going on internationally but there seem to have been some key events um at the end of the 80s and into the 90s um particularly uh the, the north korean famine um and then uh protests in 1988 uh in 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 myanmar um could you could you say something about how that sort of uh signaled a a, a new kind of post-cold war uh, era in both places yeah, well, uh, from the North Korean perspective, you know, they see their allies basically vanish within a couple of years. Uh, so the 1980s became the 1990s. And, you know, their remaining friends, China being the most significant, uh, China was not the state that it is now. It's not the, it's not the great power that it is, it is today. So they, uh, in Pyongyang, must have felt very much alone and were still not brave enough, I would say, given the ongoing competition with South Korea, which by now is, of course, a very successful economic power. Not brave enough to make the changes, uh, take on the reforms that would have been necessary to uh, create economic development and really political integration with the rest of the world. Instead, they went the other way. Uh, they remained closed economically um, uh, with, with the, the famine and industrial collapse being a direct result of, of their isolation. Mm. And then they chose to double down on the nuclear program, which had begun in the 1980s. Really, they'd been interested in having nuclear weapons forever. Uh, but they, they really started making moves towards developing it in, in the 1990s. Um, on the Burma-Myanmar uh, side of things, uh, pretty amazingly, in 1998, the military declared an end to the socialist uh, experiment, which had created incredible poverty. Um, Burma w- was in, in many ways... Uh, set up to be a very successful state. They had a huge agricultural base, pretty solid institutions in terms of a a legal system and higher education, infrastructure, airports, rail, all pretty, pretty good um, in the mid-20th century. So the the 26 years of socialism really just pissed that all away. Mm. And so by 1988, people were incredibly frustrated, In 1987, as you mentioned, they conducted a currency reform that eliminated what little wealth people had and created crazy inflation, and people began protesting. In response, the the military said, okay, socialism is over. Uh, Aung San Suu Kyi comes comes into the scene at this point and forms a, a rival party. They're pretty ambivalent about her. They do put her under house arrest uh, the next year in 19, 
89. Um, but the military also says, or the, the, the junta that they form in this sort of interregnum period, also says, okay, we're going to have elections in uh, May of 1990. And so they hold these elections, and guess what? <laughs> they, their party just gets smashed to pieces. <laughs> and it seems very much like they hadn't expected that, you know, and that can be a problem with uh, dictatorships. The people at the very top can lose touch with what's going on in the countries that they rule. They seemed really, <laughs> really surprised. Mm. And so they, they responded by extending Aung San Suu Kyi's um, detention and uh, coming up with a variety of excuses for why power could not be transferred to her party, the National League for Democracy. Mm. Um, and really the fate of the democratization movement and Aung San Suu Kyi in, in particular is what drove uh, sanctions and the pariah status uh, mm-hmm. that faced that, that uh, Rangoon, now renamed Yangon, uh, faced. Right, um, right. Yeah. And, you, and so the, the end of the Cold War, as you say, marks the end of uh, what was... In, in Myanmar, a, a socialist uh, experiment, as you say, well, I mean, two decades is, is quite a long experiment, I suppose. But um, I, I, I wonder, the next section uh, that you have uh, discusses ideologies and following that, um, how those ideologies and the sort of um, yeah. government ideas were enforced. But um, just as a sort of preface to that, could you could you say something a bit, a bit more about how socialism uh, took root? Because obviously this is a, a point of commonality between... Uh, the two states. I mean, uh, what? Wh- where did leftist ideas come into uh, Myanmar? I think. I mean, the North Korean case is perhaps a bit more, uh, a bit better known uh, regarding mm. Soviet influence and, and and also, of course, the role of China. But um, in in Myanmar, how did how did socialism sort of get into the get into the picture there? Yeah. Um, well, uh, this was the early nineteen sixties, I think. Um, socialism and and uh, state ownership and a command economy had not yet been fully discredited as an, an efficient or uh, productive way to organize um, society. Um, and so, you know, I think these ideas were part of the milieu that developing recently independent states were were facing. Um, I guess it's somewhat ironic in that um, the the military leader who who took over in 1962, Ne Win, uh, had been fighting actual communists since uh, 1948, mm-hmm. uh, and yet, you know, then chose to steer his country dramatically towards um, a socialist path. At the end of the day. Um, leaderships in both countries can be very inscrutable um, by design, and so it's it's difficult to know exactly why he he decided to uh, to take that path. Right, but the role of uh, yeah, I mean, I guess at least a, a state socialist model um, was uh, was something that both places shared, um, but mm. something which. Uh, of course, became problematized after the Cold War uh, was over. Um, so moving into this kind of post-1990s era in both places, um, how is it that each state respectively 
uh, has has ensured or sought to um, assert the control and the the kind of um, uh, dominance of, of of the government over uh, over the population and the maintenance of the government in position. Um, how, how successful has each place been, uh, and and what what yeah what kind of valuable uh, comparative dimensions are there to to that? Yeah, I think for me this is probably the most interesting part of the book, and and probably its most useful contribution to understanding these these two countries. Um, uh, in in both cases, uh, a state ideology was promulgated, and I think it's been a, a pretty humbling lesson uh, for the West and uh, diplomacy in general. Uh, the power of these ideologies is, is just much greater than I think most people assume. Um, certainly in the case of Myanmar, where I think we collectively kind of fooled ourselves into thinking that because much of the population supported Aung San Suu Kyi and were opposed to military rule, uh, we thought that maybe they had also not uh, accepted much of the ideology that that the military had uh, imposed on its people. And yet it seems very much that idea that there are eight indigenous ethnicities and everyone else is to one degree or another an interloper. Uh, that really took hold and feeds directly into the Rakhine crisis where uh, hundreds of thousands of Rohingya have been have been pushed onto the Bangladesh side of the border and live in absolute uh, abject misery with with no real solution in sight and no real sympathy uh, in mainstream uh, Myanmar society. Um, the the power of of ideology in in North Korea, I think, is again maybe slightly. Uh, more evident, partly because they've exported it so um, aggressively since since the, the mid-1960s. Uh, they tried to portray Kim Il-sung as a thought leader. His Juche ideology provides, they would argue, a, a framework for, for other small countries to follow in order to gain independence and autonomy. Um, and then, as some of our recent scholarship has pointed out, um, they the North Koreans lean very heavily on on ethno nationalism to uh, inspire people as well. And you know, a lot of so much of North Korea can seem absurd on on the face of it. The style of their propaganda, the the edicts that come down from on high that people have to follow, I think to a lot of us just seem very antiquated and weird. And yet, I think one thing I observed from from being there, and also my own personal family background, which is Armenian, is um, the the idea that you are part of an ethnic family that is under siege from a hostile world is a really powerful one. Mm-hmm. And so, as repressive as North Korea is, and controlled as that society is, I do think they they have a core set of ideas that can still motivate people and does have some resonance mm-hmm. and i think we've we've overlooked the power of ideology in both of these countries at uh well, at the the peril of successful diplomacy for one but also 
uh, in failing to understand it, we we haven't we haven't found means by which to improve the lot of either North Koreans or uh, Myanmar citizens. Mm-hmm. And well, yeah, as, I, I think as you mentioned, that is a really uh, valuable uh, contribution of the of the book, uh, the, the description of the of the kind of contents and the tenacity of of, of these these state ideologies. Um, of course, lots of ideas of ideology, lots of theories of ideology, focus on the technologies too, and the the way that these ideas are actually spread and, and the, the way that their sort of dominance within uh, society is is ensured, mm. um, whether that's social, political, or sort of even infrastructural um, technologies that, that are used to spread them. Um, how, how has each country managed uh, to, to to inculcate these these ideas? I and mean, what have actually been the concrete mechanisms in each place? Yeah, what a fantastic question for Providing a transition from chapter four to chapter five. I must say. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I read the book. You know. <laughs> yes, yes. No, no, you're good at your job. Um, the uh, yeah, so, I mean, chapter five is called is titled "Propagation and uh, Control," and as in so many other aspects of uh, Burmese uh, life. Uh, in comparison to North Korean life, the North Koreans just basically did it more comprehensively, more more thoroughly, um, you know. And part of that is because of the the nature of North Korea. Once they sealed up the southern and northern borders, it essentially becomes a, a garrison or a fortress. Myanmar much more porous highlands, borders with multiple states. Mm multiple ethnic minorities that have traditionally lived across what are now nation-state boundaries and familiar with terrain going in and out. Um, The Burmese also didn't control much of their territory for much of their history. And indeed, there's all these ethnic identities that that create a very uh, complicated um, mix of incentives and loyalties. and so into that, as you try to impose control over, you know, radio and television and, and stamp out uh, independent publishing or certainly broadcasting, as you try to control um, foreign journalists and indeed uh, indoctrinate your citizens through education and through mass mobilization organizations, it's just much more difficult for for Rangoon to to uh, conduct such a project mm-hmm. in North Korea, uh, again probably you know better known uh, just how well you know they've they've done that. So you know uh, control over TV and newspapers and radio is uh, absolute control of uh, of people uh, and their travel in and out of the country is also fairly. Absolute, um, although uh, far less than it, it used to be. Uh, after the famine, some degree of that control has broken down because North Korea has become largely a market economy and people want access to outside information. And, uh, you know, now some 30,000 people have escaped uh, across the border. You know, those numbers were in the hundreds um, before the famine. Mm. Uh, yeah, um, and indeed, the the in terms of the personal experience of of a um, of a foreigner visiting North Korea today, you still have to basically be 
accompanied by two North Koreans at all times who are responsible for your conduct. Mm. Um, there's, there's no other country that runs such a system. And those in the region that did, China and Vietnam, basically abandoned it within a few years of, of their opening and reform process, where they, they quickly realized that, you know, if we really want investors and visitors and tourism, this is not going to work. The North Koreans have stuck to that. Um, mm-hmm. in, in Myanmar, they never had that system. So even though there were plenty of spies and informants keeping track of you as a, as a visitor, you could still sneak around. I include an anecdote in the book of a journalist friend of mine who went down to, um, to cover Typhoon in 2008 and uh, was able essentially to disguise himself as a, as a Burmese person and get down to the Delta that had been uh, devastated. Um, uh, such, a, such a daring act would just simply be impossible in, in North Korea. Mm, mm. Um, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I, I, and I think, uh, I guess, uh, some of these um, uh, distinctions between uh, the situation in the two places uh, play out uh, as the book kind of moves into its final uh, couple of chapters where we actually talk about the um, kind of more contemporary uh, fate of, of, of each place within uh, this kind of international system that we were talking about earlier. Um, firstly, you deal with uh, how sanctions have been imposed uh, on each place and uh, how mm. effective those those have been. Um, and you referenced earlier the sort of misunderstanding uh, or the the, the uh, perhaps um, misapprehension of what what domestic ideologies and the way that they're enforced. Uh, uh, you met the way the West has misunderstood those uh, those dynamics. Um, how have sanctions uh, sort of taken effect on on, on both places? Uh, have they largely come as a result of misunderstanding the situation in each place? Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, how has the how has each country responded differently to to the enforcement of sanctions? Usually, yeah. say U.S. led ones. Three three gigantic questions. Sure, <laughs> sure. Take your yeah. pick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, let's say when I first went to Myanmar in 2014, I walked into uh, a shop that absolutely reminded me of of a of any number of shops in north korea there there's a commonality in sanctioned societies i think in how retail is presented and organized you know just a very eclectic cobbling together of any sorts of consumer goods that you can get your hands on so you know chocolates from from russia and teddy bears that are made in yemen and off-brand sneakers and rice cookers from Korea and just all sorts of things in a in a row, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, I was I was struck by how 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 similarly you know options for consumption were constrained in in both countries. Um, the key difference uh, in these two uh, states is that there was a real advocate for sanctions in. Burma, Myanmar, and that was Aung San Suu Kyi. And her incredible popularity at home meant that even as people's lives were being manifestly uh, damaged by sanctions, they still supported them because she supported them. And she rightly assessed that those sanctions were empowering her vis-a-vis the the regime. Mm. So, um, you, you know, the Americans essentially said... 
we'll talk to you about sanctions relief when you are talking to Aung San Suu Kyi and you are treating her better and you are respecting her rights as a, a politician who has already won an election once in 1990. Um, in North Korea, there's just no such advocate and it's impossible really to imagine there ever, ever being one. Mm. Um, so sanctions, I think, uh, have always been, you know, it would be a challenge to envision them ever working in North Korea the way they did in Myanmar. Um, in, in Myanmar, sanctions, um, in both in both countries, the leaderships want to get out from under sanctions. Mm-hmm. Obviously, mm-hmm. it's in it's in their personal interest. It's in the interests of the the coalition of ruling people around them. Um, but when when that desire to get out from under stank, under sanctions is stacked against what they see as as a core issue of security and stability, that core issue is going to win out. Mm. Every time, mm. um, yeah, and that and in, that really is what you sort of propose as one key distinction in the final uh, chapter when you discuss why it is that Myanmar has has indeed had a, a well a quite different trajectory over the last few years um, to North Korea's um, the the kind of relationship between domestic security and the and the survival of of the of the regime in the state um, and and uh, then. The, the question of international integration. Um, what well, could you flesh that out a little more? What is it that that uh, that, that uh, how is it that that dynamic has influenced the fact that Myanmar has sort of emerged, as you said, uh, from some sort of from a, to to an extent from its pariahdom, while North Korea hasn't. Yeah, I mean, first through the nineteen nineties and early two thousands, the Tatmadaw was able to either buy out or roll over and. Uh, all the key insurgencies, really. So now there's still some fighting going on uh, in the north of the country, but none of the rebel armies really pose a genuine threat to the state, and nor will they ever do so. Um, so first they consolidated uh, that, and then really in the 2000s began uh, turning towards uh, addressing the issue of, of democracy and the fate of Aung San Suu Kyi in order to get out under the sanctions, and it it took a it took a long time. Um, they they first publicly announced a plan in two thousand three, roadmap to a disciplined, flourishing democracy, as they catchily <laughs> titled it, um, and then debated what that would look like for several years. You know, essentially trying to figure out what is what is the minimum amount of democracy we can we can give um, in order to satisfy both domestic and international stakeholders. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually this led to elections in 2010 and then again in 2012 that were um, the ones in 2012, free and fair, although within a structure that uh, really privileges the military still. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, importantly, I think in terms of a lesson to be drawn from Myanmar. Um, sanctions in general, we, we slap them on uh, for a number of reasons, uh, mostly because we don't know what else to do. 
you know, we want to uh, punish or try and coerce a state into behaving differently, but we don't want the costs of an actual war, and we don't want to sit idle and do nothing. And so you end up with sanctions as sort of this middle ground um, that that really more often than not fails to achieve its goals, mm-hmm. especially when the goals are very broad and, and wide, when it's, you know, like democratize or, you know, end oppression of a particular minority. We're seeing this right now in uh, Zimbabwe, I think, although I'm, I'm certainly no expert on Zimbabwe, um, there are sanctions imposed on that country related to uh, corruption, to suppression of democracy by Mugabe and uh, land confiscation issues with white farmers. Um, Zimbabwe still has the two former problems, but did have, by all accounts, free and fair elections, having pushed Mugabe out last year. Uh, And yet there's no end in sanctions in sight because we don't really come up with very good mechanisms for getting rid of them, especially Mm. when the goals are very broad. And um, yeah, so what we saw in Myanmar was sanctions help uh, create real scarcity uh, at a time when the country was trying to return to a market economy that should have helped create a lot more efficiencies and opportunities. Um, Instead, that scarcity really helped contribute to a consolidation of power by a handful of business people who were very close to uh, the regime and made it very difficult for smaller players to be successful. Mm. Um, I think the tragedy for me is looking back, if we asked in 1990 if all these rounds of sanctions were going to just create an entrenched economic elite connected to the military and asked ourselves, would we still apply these sanctions? I think the answer is probably yes, just because, you know, the need to do something. Oh, I've made air quotes again. Look at me. Um, <laughs> but we can't look at you. That's, in, that's the point. <laughs> instead of doing nothing. Yeah. Um, and now, now we're at a point where sanctions, I think would be completely ineffective uh, because the issue we would be sanctioning the Burmese on, which is the ethnic cleansing or or genocide of the Rohingya, basically is supported by the majority of people there, mm, mm. and indeed even the civilian government. So we would we would only be, I think, furthering the aims of the people who want to push the Rohingya out if we were to sanction, you know, we would be, we, the, the greater we would be the external bad guy uh, and sanctions would be seen as wholly illegitimate imposed by people who don't understand the country and its situation. Sure. Well, and I think, I think those, those reflections on, yeah, on the effectiveness or otherwise sanctions is a, 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 a provocative uh, subject as well to think about, um, given what's likely to be coming up uh, on the North Korea side of things too over the coming yeah. months and whether whether Trump will offer relief uh, in the hopes of just sort of bolstering the sense that he's actually doing something or anything uh, of that nature. Um, you deal in, in, in your conclusion about what, where we are now, and obviously that's a constantly <laughs> evolving thing, um, but I'll, uh, I'll encourage uh, listeners to um, get hold of the book and to check that out for themselves, uh, as long, uh, along with a huge amount of other contents that we didn't have time to get into from uh, the, role of, the role of China, uh, of course, a key dimension to um, 
both uh, both countries uh, situations yes, now yes. and in the past um but uh, for now uh, i think we'll we'll wrap up and uh, i'll say thank you very much andre uh, for giving us your time today um before we let you go though perhaps i can just ask you our traditional final question namely what is it uh, that you're up to at the moment what is it you're working on uh i am working on another book which will be a, a general reader about North Korea, intended for a general audience, I mean, um, that will hopefully be able to explain a lot about the country through personal and highly readable <laughs> and entertaining anecdotes. Uh, that's the hope, anyway. Great. Um, I'm also working on a couple of research papers in collaboration with people here at Stanford and uh, puzzling through uh, what sorts of uh, projects might work in North Korea uh, in the coming year. We'll see mm. what's possible. With so much in flux, it is quite difficult to plan. The environment is uh, changing quite a bit. Sure. Well, it will be fascinating to keep uh, keep abreast of that and uh, and see see what uh, what what you what you manage to work out. Because certainly, uh, few people are in as good a position as you are to uh, be able to assess what is and is not possible amidst uh, an evolving situation. Um, well, but thanks. thanks very much. Uh, in any case, uh, it was great talking to you today, Andre. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, listeners, thank you, as always, for listening to New Books in East Asian Studies, which is a podcast on the New Books Network. Uh, we will speak to you next time. Goodbye. <laughs>